five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of uh, Dispatches. I'm in Santa Barbara, California today with Jeff Johnson. Jeff, how you doing? Great, thanks. So you are a writer and a photographer and a surfer and a climber and a filmmaker, and you also work for Patagonia. And my question is, how did that evolution start? How did that flow progress? What did you start as? Because I met you first as a writer. I thought you were a writer. I didn't know about the photography and the filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. So what what, what started it all? Um, well, first of all, there I didn't plan on any of this. Um, it just kind of <laughs> just kind of happened. Um, I was doing a lot of traveling in the in my still do a lot of traveling, but I think uh, it all started in my twenties where I was traveling a lot, and I always kept a journal and I read a lot, and that was kind of my education because I wasn't um, I was a horrible student and kind of barely even graduated high school, and. Uh, so I was traveling, reading, writing, and just trying to educate myself that mm-hmm. way. I don't, I don't think I thought it was an education, but now that I look back, it was kind of an education. And, and I always love storytelling. My dad's a really great storyteller, and I just love stories. So um, I'd write my own stories, and the writing happened with... Uh, I went on an interview with uh, Pete Johnson. I don't know if you know Pete Johnson from the North Shore... I don't know. Um, Jack's brother, Jack Johnson's oh, okay. brother, yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. Sure. There's three brothers there, but Petey went to do this interview on this guy named Eric Haas, and it's like one of my favorite surfers in the world. He's this underground underground guy. And we went there, and um, it was going to go, it was such a cool interview, and it was going to go in kind of this, like, um, not a main magazine kind of this thing. I go, God, this guy do- deserves so much more, you know? And Petey goes, well, why don't you write it? So I'd never written an article, so I wrote this whole thing. On Eric Haas and went and found some photographs and it was super fun to go dig up all sure. this stuff and it was like my first experience really doing something like that and I actually hand delivered it to Surfers Journal because I was thinking you know these guys probably just get shit sent yeah, to them bombarded. all day every day and how am I gonna make a difference and I, I've always tried to do in my life I've always tried to see what everybody does and then do it differently mm-hmm. you know not just the sake of doing it different but the sake of trying to get your stuff out there, you might want to do it a little differently. So I actually flew to California and went to Surfers Journal and knocked on the door. And, In and, person. And just said, hi, I'm, <laughs> my name's Jeff, and I got this cool story that I really think you should check out. So um, I was driving away, and he called me, and he said, hey, we're running it. We've decided, you know. What, who was the photo editor? It wasn't the photo editor. It was the regular editor. It was Scott It was Scott Hewlett. Okay, okay. And he actually introduced me to Pesman. This was like nine. When was this? Ninety nine or okay, two thousand or whatever. So it was cool. I was. I mean, Surfers Journal to me was the bible. I mean, it still is yeah. my favorite magazine. Right over there, I have the entire collection right oh, yeah. there. It's it's grand. It's so good. And yeah. and I was just stoked to meet these guys because they're a bit my biggest heroes, Hewlett and Pesman. I was like, I was, the trip was worth it right there. You yeah. Know? And then they called me and said they're going to run it. And I couldn't even believe it. It was like the biggest deal of my life, you know. And that was the first editorial piece. First, yeah, first yeah. piece I ever did for anybody. And and um, so that really s- sparked, you know, a little fire for me. I was I got excited to do more of this. And and um, I I I don't know. I did a bunch. I don't know how many I've done now. Um, the one article I did with you for yeah. Al Chapman's yeah. that was maybe my third or something. But okay. Um, so. I really love that storytelling aspect, and then I, I got a camera around the same time, I think 2000 or whatever, I got my yeah. first camera, because I always traveled with a little pocket camera. That's what and, happens, because I started initially really early on, I was a newspaper writer, and, oh. they, and they sent me to a bomb threat, and there was no photographer, and they said, hey, will you take a camera and like, no make way. some pictures? And I was like, why are you sending me to the bomb threat? That should that should have told me enough right there, like, yeah, yeah he's yeah. expendable. But so that's, that was my next question was the camera. So you went from scouring for other people's images of people to making your own pics. Yeah, I was, well, I always shot photos while I was traveling, you know, and, and um, not very good photos, but I love taking photos. Mm-hmm. And, and now I, 
I realized I can maybe tell stories and do it even better with photos. Mm-hmm. And so I got a camera and just asked, I knew all these great photographers, I just asked a lot of questions and that's back in the film days. Right. So I got um, a bunch of film and a new, ca- new you know, real camera and yeah. just started shooting and Surfers Journal published one photo long as a canoe in a backyard. And um, that was exciting, of course. And yeah, then, that's a great, great feeling. Yeah, yeah, I was super excited about that. And so it's a super long story, but um, somehow I, I got kind of introduced to the uh, editor at Patagonia. And, you know, I was living on the North Shore of Oahu as a lifeguard um, on all the beaches there, and I was a flight attendant traveling. Okay. And so I was doing all this stuff, and um, we developed a relationship, and I, I didn't... I was surrounded by some of the best surf in the world, some of the best surfers, some of the mm-hmm. best surf photographers, but I had no urge to shoot the surf. I, I just figured everybody else is doing that. Why? Yeah. I'd rather surf. So I was kind of more into shooting travel stuff. And, you know, I, I was basically shooting our little adventures that we were doing around Oahu. We're sailing canoe. We tried to sail canoe to Kauai. We sailed the canoe around the island, and I do slideshows in our garage, and they're super fun. You know, a lot of heckling and beers, and oh yeah. So I totally got into the slideshow thing, and it was basically just for my friends. And and somehow, I, long story short, I developed this relationship with the editor of Patagonia, and, and she published one of my photos, and it was insane. Like the buyout was like it was like three grand, three year buyout yeah. or something. I was like real, I, real money. Yeah, yeah, and especially at that time, I was living off probably. You know, 800 bucks a month or something you know right. so it yeah, was a yeah. huge deal and then she started paying for my processing she she saw something there that she liked and was encouraging me with paying for the film and processing which as you know mm-hmm. is a huge yeah. deal you can spend 300 bucks on a shoot easy just on yeah. the film yeah yeah and so um and at the same time um because of my lifestyle i was always in the water as a lifeguard and i was surfing a ton and all kinds of surf and and they started sending me board shorts to test and some gear okay so i'd get this gear to kind of test and gear to shoot and i just kind of this thing sort of happened that's how the relationship started yeah nice. and it was cool it was like it was different than most of the photographers around that were shooting for surf magazines yep um i was had this kind of other thing i was doing doing and and um that's fantastic it was it was really cool and and I loved it. I mean it was just to me it was just such a big deal because I had so much respect for that company and to me it's like they were like the the top you know they yeah. were like the creme de la creme so um, I was just so excited to be working with them in general but to be able to do this and you you're know. still working with them yeah it um, again that's a whole other story but I yeah. um, I went on a trip with the owner Yvonne Chenard he he asked he called me one day and asked me to go on a trip which is just another that's another nice little yeah, phone call I yeah. thought it was somebody joking with me but um, so we we really hit it off and um, I started a relationship with him and they're gonna launch this whole surf component to Patagonia and and um, it just got my gears turning and I I, I thought the, the Malloy brothers and I could offer something and yeah. and help them do that. So now it's you know ten years later we're still doing it. And that I think I I left Hawaii, two thousand four, and moved over here and started working for Patagonia in two thousand four. And that's when the Malloys and I all got hired to develop some product, the storytelling of the whole surf component of Patagonia. They seem like interesting guys. I don't I've never met any of them. Uh, oh, I, don't, yeah, I yeah. don't really know much about them other than what I've seen you know online and things. But in, in your movie, which we're going to talk about later, but it's uh, they seem like pretty interesting guys. So, yeah, super interesting. All totally different. Three brothers, you know, and they're, um, I think the uh, the thing that people come away with is just how uh, down to earth they are and how, it's just such a weird buzzword now, but how authentic they are and yeah. what they do. Like they really walk the walk and talk the talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just uh, so I wanna super go good dudes. So I want to go back a little bit because before you ever picked up a pen, you were in the water, you were surfing. Didn't you start surfing at a relatively young age no actually i didn't um i grew up inland of san francisco in a town oh, called danville. Oh, danville that's right yeah, yeah and yeah. i grew up um my dad was a big skier he got me skiing when i was four years old so i probably did that before anything and then i got into skating i did all the regular sports and stuff but then i just started listening to punk rock and got a haircut and a skateboard you know and <laughs> that that changed yeah. my life but yeah. i i got into skating in my early teens and um 
there's one surfer, two surfers in Danville or whatever, and one guy lived on my block and he made surfboards. Uh. And he's one of my biggest heroes ever, huge influence on me. But he took me surfing, surfing for the first time when I was 15. That's um, pretty young. Pretty young, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I'm yeah. just comparing my friends to my friends that grew, grew up, up in Santa beach. Cruz and yeah. Oahu. It's like the the kids in Hawaii and Santa Cruz and all the beach towns they learn at like five. Exactly. Or, you yeah, know, I hadn't even been on a it's boogie unfair. board yet. Yeah. So, so yeah, 15 is kind of young, but not totally. Not young. in California terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I got my first wave wave when I was 15, but I couldn't really surf till I could drive, because I had to drive an hour or two. Yeah. And um, then I started surfing and really surfing at like 16, and then um. When I that kind of took over everything, and then I moved to Hawaii, right when I graduated high school, I was 18 years old, 1987, um, and I moved. That's when I graduated. Yeah, yeah you said yeah. you're 46, yeah, so yeah, we're yeah, the yeah. same oh, same nice, age. Yeah, nice. And so yeah, I just moved to Hawaii just because I loved Hawaii, and that's I'm like if I'm gonna surf, that's where I want to be. And I was a total kook, you know. I couldn't. I've still, you know how surfing is. I started at 15, as 18, I still couldn't really surf that yeah. well, you know. But um, but because yeah. So I've been doing it for a long time. There's so much to to know and learn that you don't think about when you first get on a board because you're thinking, oh, I just need to learn how to stand up on the board. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. there's so many other variables that you just don't even think about until you get out there and go. The board is kind of it's like the camera, the, the apertures and shutter speed. You don't really think about that yeah, after yeah, the yeah. first first while because you're looking around like, oh, I gotta find light. I gotta find <laughs> some something happening and like totally. Right, yeah. So it's a lot more complicated than it seems. Yes, yeah, standing on the board is the easiest part. Yeah. Like that's getting it. the wave is the hardest part. It's the hardest know? part. Yeah. So we're going to bounce around a little bit here, but, um, and I'm, some of these, these questions are based on seeing your film a couple of years ago. And I guess I should add actor to this list of, <laughs> of, of accolades here. But you did a, a, a really fantastic film, and it's a film that we're, I have a little bit further down the list here. But after watching the film and listening, because you're narrating narrating the film, it seems like the the life that you've put together as an adult is a very conscious decision to sort of, like you said, you're looking at how everybody else is doing something and you're kind of doing your own thing. How, is that an accurate statement? And how much effort does it require to live that way in a world where it's really easy to conform or a world that's really easy to look at some of the issues in the world and go, well, like, what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. How much how much effort does it require, and how much of a conscious decision is it for you to continue to sort of live that way? Well, I think it's um, yeah, that's a big question, but uh, <laughs> that's I, why it's first. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, it's like anything. It take what wherever I've gotten, I don't know where I'm at really, but like to get to where I'm at now has taken a, a lot of work, and it's been it's been it's been hard, but great. Um, I think where it comes from is that. Um, as a kid, I was such a bad student and just a total fuck up in school. And I, I basically got kicked out of high school and had to go to this kind of like continu- a continuation school, which was just like all the you know, pregnant kids and drug addicts. And, you know, it was yeah. like going to juvenile trouble kids. Hall. Yeah, it's yeah. trouble kids. And so I think probably what led to that is I I'm, I'm probably have some sort of learning disability that they call something now, you know, but yeah. um because I had that, because I didn't have a traditional kind of way of going about things, like I couldn't do school, I wasn't, I, I couldn't, I wasn't made up or I didn't choose to do that road, to go right. down that road because I couldn't do it. So I had to kind of do, do it my own way, which is kind of a rough road, but it's, I had to figure out my own way of doing things rather than follow the normal steps. Um, not saying that's a good thing, it's just yeah, the it's only just, way I could do it. It's the way you it. did it. Yeah, yeah. like, the, like, uh, like the Surfer's Journal thing was a good example. I, I was thinking like, I'm not an educated writer. I didn't go to high I didn't go, I barely made high school. I didn't go to college. Yeah. I don't have a degree. There's probably all these writers that are doing these great. How am I going to get my dumb little article in there? Like, well, I got to do it differently, yeah. you know? So that's what I did. And so I, I think I, it's not like I, I can look back now at 46 and going, okay, this is how I do things. But back then I didn't really know that this was like a technique. It was just yeah. like, I want to do this. How am I going to do that? And I just saw things out in front of me that I wanted to do, and I just kept doing it. And kind of it's like uh, I just followed my heart, I think, but it's it, it could have not worked out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I, I just have always stuck with the things that I believe in and that I love, and and for good or worse, you know. It could, yeah. It, 
I might not have ever got a published photo or whatever. I just still want to do it. So yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if that answers the no, question, no, but it's it, this kind of... That's fine. I had a, uh, I, I, the neighbor that I grew up next to in Texas, they had two, two daughters. And the older daughter, when she got out of college, she flew to New York City. And I think if I remember the story correctly, she went to the MTV office, which at the time was a really new sort of burgeoning company. Yeah, yeah. And she said, uh, she like looked on the masthead and said, oh, this person looks important. And she just went to the front desk and said, I have an appointment with so-and-so. And she, and she didn't have it. And so they said, well, you're not on the schedule. And she goes, look, I flew here from Texas. I had an appointment. And they were like, okay, okay, okay. And they let her in. Wow. She got a job at MTV. <laughs> I'm like, that's it. That's, that's how you do it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. That's, you yeah. know, that's how her patch fearless. And she just went for it. So. And even if they know, they probably knew she was lying eventually, but they're like, wow, that's amazing. That initiative. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're going to, you're going to go far with us. Exactly. You know? like, exactly. So when you're on a trip, does and i'm curious about this because a lot of times people will come up to me and they'll go oh man i would so love to go with you on a trip and i'm like i don't think you really know what it is <laughs> yeah, so yeah. does the collection of work supersede the actual living of the adventure that you're in because sometimes you get so possessed by taking making photographs or writing yeah, yeah. that it puts this weird filter between you and everything else because it's so difficult to make great work great photographs great writing yeah, yeah, yeah. how you do two at the same time i don't know but does it, let's say that Patagonia says, hey, we want you to go somewhere and do this. Obviously, you're shooting for Patagonia and that, that, that content or that work is like job number one. Yeah, yeah. But let's say that you and I decide we're going to go to the Channel Islands and we're going to sail around the Channel Islands and you still go, look, I need to make, I want to write something that maybe will get published at some point and I'm going to photograph and maybe it's going to get published. Does, yeah. does that, how does it work for you? Because... <laughs> A lot of people who are going, and this is going to lead to another long second question here. Yeah, yeah. A lot of photographers don't surf, they don't climb, they're not adventure people, but they're still getting assigned to do these things. Yeah. Your subjects and the people you're photographing know that you surf, you climb, and you do these things. So that has a definite impact on the work that you get because they respect sure, who you are. Sure, yeah. So when you're in the field though, how, how crazily possessive are you of making that work? Well, it's um, it's funny because my first when uh, when we got hired at Patagonia, I had a f my first couple assignments, and and uh, the f my first assignment or first trip was uh, we did this thing called Ben de Baja, and we did a book oh, yeah. on it and stuff, yeah. and it was to promote the Patagonia surf component that we were producing. So it was my first real assignment as a photographer, you know. So um, we, Keith and I get in this veggie fuel truck, and we go up to San Francisco, and we get there, and Mavericks is breaking. And I had never surfed Mavericks. I've flown over and tried to do the Man Mavericks thing, and I've oh, never yeah. gotten it. And I was like, holy shit, it's really good right now. And so I gave, I had a brand new 600 lens that Patagonia just bought. And I, I set my friend up with the tripod and the 600 and gave him a bunch of Velvia lens, told him, I mean, <laughs> I gave him a bunch of Velvia um, film. And I showed him how to load and I said just shoot every every wave that comes in I went and surfed so it was like my first day on the job and I was like blowing it, blowing right? it off so, to go surfing yeah and I remember the Malloy's just kind of tripping out going this is so weird that you're sitting on the beach and shooting while we're surfing because it's usually not that yeah but anyways trips later um I had to get used to that it was kind of you know people were like hey are you so excited for your Indonesia trip I'm like yeah but not as excited as you think like it's actually I'm gonna go there they don't understand when a surf photographer goes to Indonesia you're shooting all day. Yeah. You're going into, and I know I'm not sound, I'm not whining. Like it's, no, it's you're talking about the reality that the reality people see of, the the surface of yo. You're taking your camera to Indonesia, but you're, it's a yeah. it's a job. You're it's working. a job. So yeah. like you're you know, everybody's getting ready to surf. You're taking a little dinghy and you're going through the shore break. You're sitting with mosquitoes that have malaria and you're just like shooting and you're sweating all day. And then like everybody goes to eat. The boat forgets to come get you. You're you're starving. <laughs> and then you come in and you're downloading your photos. They're going for another session. You go out and shoot, and then now everybody, it's evening time, everybody's drinking beers, you're downloading photos yeah. till like 10 at night, then you get up at 5 in the like 15 days straight. Like, it's gnarly. Yeah. It's actually, like, those trips, it's like I got to gear up for, like, okay, I'm going to yeah. Indo, this is going to be heavy. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? you got you got a plan, you got to be physically and mentally prepared, yeah. and then sometimes when you get back, it's like you're more tired than you were, you're just it's just spent. It's a it's a haul, so, and then when you're everybody's drinking beers, you're like, oh, I should get some shot of them drinking beers, like, you don't stop, you're just yeah. like always shooting. Um, I had to, at a certain point, kind of just put the camera down, because 
I realized I was, as you know, you get so excited about photos, especially in the beginning yeah. when you're working and getting, you know, it's new to you. And so the photographer, as you know, is not experiencing the moment. The photographer is shooting and, yeah. and like your friends are having beers and having fun and you're shooting. You're going to enjoy that moment when you see the photos, but right. you're not actually in that moment. So I had to start drawing a line between work and pleasure. I had to stop, start putting the camera down. And so I, I work really hard at, at separating those two. Like when you mentioned us doing a trip out to the islands, I might not even take a photo, Yeah. you know, unless I needed to, unless people are like, Hey, let's do, cause I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go to the islands and, have a beer with you and sail and I'm going to dive and I'm yeah. going to surf and I'm going to have a really good time. I might take out my iPhone and take a couple photos, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's kind of sad almost that it kind of, it ruins your, it, it's become a business, but you have to like, I know photographers that haven't put the camera down Yeah. and they're never there, you know? So like, I need to go, like what drives me is being able to go surf and climb and do this stuff. So I need to kind of but, but separate I separate them. You know? I think that's the key because before I got into photography, I grew up in the country. Uh, we were outside all the time. I was hunting, fishing, climbing, whatever, riding bikes. Yeah. And then I picked up a camera, and for 25 years, I didn't do any of that. I was I was possessed. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I was living this life where every day was a camera, and I carried a camera every day, all day, whether I was working or not. And then one day, about four or five years ago, I was like, wait a minute, I like all these other things that I used to do. I want to go back and do those. Yeah, what happened? Yeah. But yeah. the weird thing is, at the same time, the world was being inundated with a level of imagery that I knew that you, there's no possible way for anyone to consume, including myself. And so... The digital I, era? Yeah, the digital yeah. era, and yeah. then also the social media era, and the way of sharing all these things. Yeah, so yeah. suddenly, every day, there's an avalanche of, of content. And what I realized was that photography had sort of fallen down in relevance, but it was a different kind of relevance. So now when I take pictures, I take fewer pictures and I'm not as possessed with like them being aesthetically perfect or whatever, yeah. but they're, they, they're back to what they originally sig signified, which was a memory or a moment that's important to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually a really liberating kind of thing. For the first time in five years, I'm actually really getting excited again to maybe go find a project that I would work on that's like a long-term project. And it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. I've been thinking about it the last couple of days, like, can I even do it anymore? Because it's... I, you know, it's, it's changed so much for it, you. Yeah. It's changed, but also it's great photography is like, it's like being in shape. And if you're not in shape, you go into the field and you're going to suffer. And I suffer because I'm not, I'm not used to reacting and thinking like you have to do as a yeah, photographer. Yeah, yeah. So the first three or four days are just miserable because I miss everything. You see the photographs and you go, well, that I, I should have photographed that, but I'm, yeah, I'm just not yeah, good yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's so constant struggle, right? Yeah. We're going to take another little right angle here, which is interesting to me. I used to climb, uh, but oh, it was really? only sport, sport climbs. I never did any big walls. Uh -huh. And you, when did you start climbing? Um, late, again, late in life. Um, I'd, so when, right before I moved to Hawaii in 87 or whatever, some guys took me climbing in our, at our local mountain or whatever. Okay. And it freaked me out. I didn't sleep that night. I was so excited. bought some shoes the next day, and that's all I wanted to do. But I was, I was moving to Hawaii in a couple months. And so that was it. I did a couple climbs and then I actually brought my shoes to Hawaii. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's no climbing. No. There wasn't then. But, um, but I never forgot about climbing. And I always read about it and I always was kind of an armchair climber. I'd get the magazines and all that stuff. And I always had a, I had a couple goals in mind that I'm like, someday I'm going to do this. And I always thought, like, someday I'm going to go climbing. And so years went by, um, a whole decade or more than a decade. And so in my early thirties, I was just kind of like, I, I got to do this. Like, yeah. I still haven't forgot about that. So there's a, there's some people climbing around Oahu and there's one guy who had been developing all these routes. So I went to that climbing area, got to know him and, and just started kind of doing it. And, and, uh, I just was introduced to some great people and I just, for a while I was, um, for a few years, I because I was a flight attendant, I can fly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I stashed a van in San Francisco with climbing gear, and so on my when I had days, I'd fly over with my yeah. passes. I'd get my van. I'd go on climbing trips. So like, wow. I think 33, 34, I started really getting into it and doing trips, and and then my surf trips would I, like Australia. We went to like Arapiles and then, 
you know, we'd climb on a Rapalies and when a swell hit, we'd run to the coast. And nice. So I started Double incorporating team. climbing into some of my surf trips. And There's a big difference between, and I, I, in some weird way, and this is maybe completely inaccurate, but there's, it's like shooting surf with a 600 and F4 on the beach. And then there's shooting with a 20 in the water at pipeline. Big difference. Yeah. 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 And I equate sport climbing is very different than big wall climbing. Yeah, totally. And totally. I will. I love sport climbing, but there's no way in hell you're ever going to see me on a big wall. What <laughs> What is it like the first time you're at Yosemite, looking up? That has to be. You're You're probably excited. I'm terrified. My hands sweat thinking about it. But what was that oh, yeah. like the first time you looked at a my big hands wall? are sweating right now. <laughs> um, oh, it's crazy because I went there as a little kid. You know, when I was uh, we did a, a trip when I was a kid, and I remember them telling their, us their climbers up on the wall. We couldn't even see them. I I didn't even. Is like men walking on the moon or something. So, um, so going there as a climber, like you kind of, I was sport climbing in Hawaii. There's a little yeah. crag there, so I'd only sport climb. And then I show up in, in Yosemite, and it's just over. It's just like no way. There's yeah. No, you know, I thought, I my goal was like someday I'm gonna do a big wall. Like, but I wasn't even a climber. I was just like Yosemite big walls. That's where it's that's at, it. right? Yeah. It's and so when I got into climbing and then showed up in Yosemite, I kind of went okay, I'm never going to do a big wall. It's too... It's too big. Too big. There's, you got to know too much. And I'll, I just realized, like, now that I know how to climb, I know that that's not going to happen, you know? But it did happen pretty quickly through some random events. A guy dragged me up there one day. Or five, it took us five days, but um, he dragged me up. And I, I didn't know, what, you know, I barely knew what was going on. And it was just... I mean, that's like when I look at the pictures on your side and I see those bivy ledges on the walls at Yosemite, <laughs> I mean, literally my hands are just pouring sweat. It yeah, just yeah. makes me so, so nervous. So uh, we're going to shift here because a few years ago you made a film called 180 Degrees South and the subtitle is uh, Conquistadors of the Useless, yeah. which is definitely one of the best subtitles in history. The interesting thing about the film is... Um, I have talked to people all over the world. We, you know, we talk about photography, we talk about art, we, then it, my wife works in Hollywood, it sort of meanders into the film world, and I, always, I love documentaries, and I always bring up your film. And I go, hey, you, you like documentaries? Hey, have you ever seen this film called 180 Degrees South? Every single person that has seen it turns around, and the range of person is from never been in the woods person, never been on a boat, never will surf, never will ever go to Patagonia person, to like the hardcore environmental activist. Everybody loves that film. It's, oh, it's fantastic, oh. it really is. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So what, how did this whole thing come about? I mean, how did you suddenly become actor, director? <laughs> I wasn't a director, no, Chris Malloy directed that. Like that was Okay, that was your so. chance to claim that. But okay, so the <laughs> yeah, Malloy directed it and then his brother was also in it as well. Keith was in it yeah. too, yeah, yeah. And how did this, how did it start? Where, how did the nucleus of that idea come about? Well, that, that, um, I, I know the story of the film, but like, was it, you found the footage of, of, uh, Yvonne's and. Yeah. So and I was, I was, uh, you know, the Malloy brothers and I had a house on the North shore together for 10 years or whatever. And, um, I was here in Ventura visiting them over the holidays or something. And this girl I knew that worked at Patagonia, um, she came up to me with this old dusty VHS tape and said, you, you know, you got to see this. I, I snuck it out of the vault at Patagonia. It's been in there for like 40 years and or 30 years or whatever. And we're not supposed to show it outside the company, but I know you'd be excited about this. So I was like, what the hell is this? So I brought it over to Chris's parents' house and I think it was me, Chris and Dan, the little, his little brother. We plopped it in. We're like, what is this? And it comes on and it's this film that, that Yvonne Chouinard and Doug, Doug Tompkins and Lito Flores made. Um, you know, in 1968, they drove a van all the way down to Patagonia to climb. Just that alone is fantastic. Insane. And yeah. it's like, it's, it's, it's got original soundtrack, kind of this corny music, you know, and it's all edited. And it's ha it even has blank spots where it says insert commercial here, <laughs> you know, and it's like this crazy thing. And the coolest thing about the movie is they're going down to climb Fitzroy but that's just a side note, and it's just the adventure of them getting down there. They yep. surf all these spots, they climb volcanoes, they ski, they do all this stuff. And, and Chris and I looked at each other and we're like, what happened? Why is no one seeing this? This is like, yeah. this is the brand right here. Like, Yvonne Chouinard came back from this trip and, and started his company. He named his company after that trip, Patagonia. Yeah. Doug Tompkins had already sold North Face 
Um, he started North Face. He'd already sold it. He came back and started Esprit with his wife. Um, in the late 80s, he sold his shares of Esprit and made trillions of dollars. And then he went back down to Patagonia to purchase all this land and restore it and give it back as, as national parks. So that's what he's doing with his life. And he's down at Patagonia as we speak. So we're, we're thinking this is the trip that changed these guys' lives. And these are huge characters. Like yeah. they've done big things. Yeah, and, for sure. And you're not supposed to show this outside the company. This is the brand right here, you know? Yeah. And so at this point, we, had, we weren't working for Patagonia. And it was, we weren't even thinking about that. So we... We, Chris and I, Chris had already made a couple of really great surf movies and we started talking about like, Hey, we got to do this. Like we got to do something in the spirit of this yeah. or document these guys. Somehow we have to do a trip like this. And so we talked about it for years. That was in probably 99 or 2000. Long story short, four years later, we start working for them. Um, totally unrelated to that film and everything. And then we started working and a year into it, Chris and I sat down and I go, hey, remember, remember that idea yeah. we had? Now we work with these guys. Let's bring it, you know, so Chris let's and mention I- mentioned the film, the secret film. Yeah, let's yeah. let's bring up the idea and see where it takes us, you know? And, um, you know, it's some of the best, I mean, we couldn't believe it's been sitting around. So, but I wasn't supposed to be really in it. I was just gonna either do some writing. There's, in the beginning, there's um, surfers and climbers going down there's a totally different crew there's like dean potter and his wife steph davis maybe okay. Brittany griffith keith malloy and i was going to be the guy that could um kind of go back and forth between the climbers and surfers i was like the, the guy that can climb and surf right. and take photos so my position i don't really know what it was going to be okay um but i i just wanted the thing to get done i was like this is going to be the that's a great project. story yeah and um, but chris did a u-turn and at the final final hour and he said this is not a cool movie. Like this is all fake. He's like, you're the, this you're, is your story. Yeah. He's like, that's the movie. Like this is your dream. You're gonna be. We're gonna follow you down there. And it was Gulp. like a deer in headlights. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to get used to that. But yeah, that's. And what's of, funny is I was flipping through Netflix a couple of years ago. I see it. I see the cover image, and I go, that looks interesting. And I I turn it on, and the movie's been on for five minutes, and I'm looking at you, and I'm like wait a minute, <laughs> that's that's the Jeff Johnson that I know. And then I was like, rewind, rewind. I'm like, oh my God, it's the same guy. And and, and then I thought, and I've, I've probably seen that movie 10 times now. Oh, cool. And I was cool. trying to get my nephew to watch it the other night and, and Netflix was down so we couldn't watch it because I wanted him to see it before we came here. But So the, it's a film, but it's also, you did a book as well. Yeah. And the book is, you've got four by five, you've got 35, you've got digital, you've got all these different things. What, what was the experience of doing the book like? Well, the book was an afterthought. We were, um, I think Chris, when we met up on Easter Island, Chris, we were drinking beers one night. He goes, I think we should do a book, you know? And, and uh, so he started kind of halfway through the making of the film, he started thinking of a book and he talked to Tom Adler, um, who's again, one of my biggest heroes. I have like all his books. He's just an insane designer. And so he said, Tom, he asked Tom if he'd want to design a book for it. And Tom was stoked to do it. So when we came back, um, we just started kind of, it was, it was an afterthought. We, we didn't really have a plan for the book until okay. we came back. Then we started, they were like, Hey, do you think you have enough stories to tell? Do you think, do we have the photography? And, and the, I think my photos are probably maybe 50% or 70% of the book. Mm -hmm. There's also Scott Sowens who shot a lot of the four by five. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Chin, Danny Moto, who was the DP on yep. it. He shot a bunch of photos yep. that were amazing. Um, so it was, there's, but it wasn't in, just my photos. And what's but. interesting, too, is you have all those conversational topics and then you have the dialogue between each individual person, which is a pretty interesting combination of copy and, and photography, which is like, hey, here's a, here's a question, and then it's each one of these people responding to the question. Yeah, in the end, there's a yeah. thing with Doug Tompkins, yep. I think me a little bit, but mostly Doug and Yvonne yep. talking. And yeah, so you, yeah, it's, it's an interesting book how it has some history there, then it has the trip, and then the dialogue. It's cool. I mean, it's. I looked at it again at Patagonia today. I've, I've never been to Patagonia and Ventura, oh, so I went there right. today. So when I'm looking through your website, I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing action sport work, which is, let's say, more of the expected work. So you have like peak action, you have surfing, and you have climbing and these things. Yeah. But there's a couple of images in there. There's a cigarette picture from Yosemite on the big wall, black and white, oh, of yeah. a hand with a cigarette. And then there were two images that were back-to-back. -back. One is from... 
I don't know where I forget the name of the town, but it's a it's a little shelter and there's a stove and there's mate cups in the center. Oh, it's a gaucho drinking mate. Yeah. No, there's no person. It's just oh. an empty room and there's a stove. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. the secondary photo to that is an unmade bed at the same place. That's right. And That's right. Those three photos, because let's say there's an action picture of a guy on a sail. It's probably on the way when you're sailing to, to Chile. Yeah. And there's slow shutter. Mm-hmm. And the guy's he's wearing orange. He's next to the mask. He's sharp. Everything else is blurred. I love that picture. Thank you. Thanks. But these other three pictures to me are really telling. And those, for me, are really important images. But it's it's almost like taking the car out of out of sixth gear and putting it back in first gear. How did, interesting. How did those three photo that style of photograph, how does that fit into your thought process when you're making pictures? Because most people go, oh, you shoot for Patagonia and you shoot surfing and climbing. They think peak action. Yeah. I look at your work and I go, those three pictures to me are really telling as to who you are as a photographer. Wow, so interesting. where does that fit for you? It's funny you mention that because that's been uh, kind of a... Um, little bit of a struggle for me in a way um it's funny you pick up on that because you're a photographer but um so yeah when i'm shooting for patagonia it's uh it's definitely a style that i got used to i think getting into patagonia i always looked at the patagonia catalogs i liked national geographic i kind of shot with that little wider angle kind of more close-up kind of thing and and what you kind of what obviously you fall into is this action sports kind of outdoor photography world which is awesome yeah um and that's what i've been doing for so many years but it's also i started shooting if you look at i could show you some of my early when i first got my camera the stuff i was shooting is what you're seeing yeah like those photos that you saw of the unmade bed and the tea kettle or whatever and those things to me are the most special um, but that's not what I do for work. That's right. You know, so, um, and nothing against what I do. For, I love what I do for work, but I've been doing that for so long that sometimes I forget to shoot those, you know, and I, th- and I, I love street photography and, and like the way you shot Al Chapman. Like to me, I like, it's funny. I could look at so many insane surfing shots and stuff, but I turned to those pages of that you shot of Al yeah. Chapman. And I'm yeah. like, that to me is the shit. Like that's like where it's at. And it's not, a lot of people wouldn't recognize that, I think, because it's it's just where your background is, you know? And it's funny you recognize those. Yeah, because to me, when I saw those photos, I see the action sports and I go, that's Jeff on assignment. And then I see those quiet pictures and they're almost pictures that at times you don't even understand that you're making, but there's, it's because it's the reason why you picked up a camera. And so that reason doesn't ever go away and it manifests itself every now and then in these little quiet photos. (laughs) And I like seeing that on the site because you see all these pictures and there's a lot of work in the archive and I went through the archive and oh, I'm you like, did? yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder and I'm like, that's might interesting. Be the only person that's done it. And then there's like this little theme of these pictures and I'm like, those are really important because that's, in my opinion, that's who you are as a photographer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, just to backtrack, kind yeah, of yeah. give ahead. you a little history of why that kind of went down. Before the trip, um, I just that year switched from digital to, I mean, film to digital. Mm. And it really took the wind out, out of my sails. I, I thought I was on this long trajectory of film, which is such a hard thing to, to master. You never master it. And it was almost like I was climbing this big wall, and then somebody put a ladder there. You know, and I was like, <laughs> oh, you can just climb a ladder to the top? Yeah. That's cool. Hey, no problem. And so I was shooting digital, and I was, in the, I was staring at a computer screen more than I was shooting, and I was kind of depressed over it. I, was, I wasn't really as, as excited about photography. And Chris knew this before the trip. And he said, hey, he can tell I was kind of just in a funk about it. Yeah. You know? And he said, why don't you get a film camera, get, buy a Leica. He's all, buy a Leica camera and get a bunch of black and white film and just shoot like you used to. Yeah. And it was so cool because I, I thank God he did that because I left on this trip. And the cool thing about it is that we, didn't, we weren't talking about a book. I didn't have any assignment. I was supposed to be the guy on the trip. And so I was able just to creep around with my little Leica and take these little special shots for me. Yeah. Um, and no, no one else. I just that's so. I during that trip, I had my digital camera and I'd shoot the action and do all that stuff. But yeah. then I had my little Leica that I sneak yep. around with. And when I got back, you know, you don't develop your film till you get back. So I I got back and developed all this film. And I had like one roll might have three countries on it. Cause right. You're like click. Yeah. yeah. Click Some, selective. Yeah. Sometimes I'd go out to shoot and I wouldn't even shoot a photo. Where if I had my digital camera, I'd be like da 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 da. You know. 
and look at the computer screen. But like, you know, it just, it was neat to get back to that. And so that started a whole new thing for me with shooting a Leica. And now I have a black and white, I have a Leica camera that only shoots black and white. It's a monochrome and that's my camera that I have. And so I do a lot of street photography and a lot of different things with that. And it's not how, it might be how I make my living eventually, but it's not really what brings in the bread and butter yeah, you know, I but, think it, I think it's really important work. I, th- I think it's important that you never stop making that, whether or not anybody ever sees it or anybody ever pays you for sure, it. Sure, sure. I think that's the thing that keeps the spark lit inside is that those little quiet pictures. Yeah, that's the yeah. that's to the me key. they're the most important thing. I mean, the, oh, those yeah, are the sure. special things. You know, it's yeah, like, because they're your it's your fingerprint on those pictures. Yeah, you know, that, yeah, yeah, that's the key. Yeah. So creatives um, oftentimes don't get a lot of respect. In, in the in the general world, especially in the business world. And I was in Australia, Australia last year, and there's a woman who runs a creative festival down there. And she said, you know, the creatives were never really given any, any sort of respect in terms of industry in Australia. And then they figured out, they actually did some, some studies and realized that the creative industry brings in a lot of revenue in, in, the, in the, basically the, like the GDP for the country. Hmm. A lot of it is based around the creative industry. And it's not just mining and it's not just finance or shipping or whatever. Huh. Huh. Where do you think creatives, like uh, my opinion is creatives are here to counterbalance boring stuff. Like they, <laughs> they have the permission to do weird stuff that makes you, may, it may make you angry it may make you sad. It may inspire you, but that's what it's here for. Yeah. Where do you think creatives fit in? Um, I, I, you, you know, you need both. You know, if like, uh, oh, yeah. if I was running Patagonia, it'd <laughs> yeah. be, it'd be done. It'd be done. It'd be yeah. done. You know, like, like I can't, I can't even add. Um, so yeah, there's a place for both. But yeah, it, it's a. I see the kind of, and I don't know if this answers your question, but even at a company like Patagonia, there's like this. Uh, this give and take of of the numbers people and the creative people, you know, and like sometimes oh, sure. the, the number people have more of the pull and then sometimes the creative. So in the marketing department, you know, sometimes, you know, there's this give and take all the time. So I think it's like, well, you, you're not going to have your numbers unless you have a great story or a great product. That's you know? right. They're like, well, we need this. This product sells a shitload. We're like, well, this badass jacket that we made might not sell a shitload, but it's going to drive your brand which will eventually, because you have a lot of creative designers making this badass jacket, you might only sell 100, but it's going to drive all your polo shirts. Right. You know, and then, then in the photography, you know, the photography yeah. world, it's, it's a like, balance. well, if you, just like in the catalogs, it, sometimes there'll be a photo and then the jacket's hanging over the photo. It's like, no, that jacket, you make that jacket small, make the photo big, that's going to sell your jacket. You know, that's the creative mind thing. So I, you need a, there's always a balance. A balance. Does that answer yeah, a little I think bit? So. Like, it's like, yeah. You got to have both. Yeah. For sure. You know? Oh, yeah. I can't. I mean, I'm mathematically illiterate. You couldn't put <laughs> yeah, me in the totally. banking industry. It would be the financial collapse would be on me for sure. Yeah. yeah. So briefly, I want to talk about risk and failure. So when I got into photography, we were basically told, look, 99% of what you do is going to be an abject failure. But that just deal with it. That, that's the way it's always been. Failure and risk are not necessarily looked at the same way today. We have better technology. People kind of think they can get around those. I think that there's something you should celebrate. Like if you're not failing on a regular basis, you're probably not trying hard enough. Have you ever completely flamed out on something, just fell on your face, but then managed somehow to turn it into something that you go, you know, that didn't work, but wow, that made me look in this other direction and then it ended up being something positive. Um, well, first of all, I think it's kind of like uh, climbing is a good example of that because uh, um, a lot of the best climbs in history were failures, you know, and you learn more from something you failed on. And when we didn't summit in the movie, yeah, 180 yeah. South, it was kind of, it was so great. For, it was perfect for the story. That's what we're trying to tell. It was a, it was perfect actually that we failed and our mass broke and all that yeah, stuff, you yeah. know? So, um, failing is, is the only way you grow. Um, as far as not, um, I'm trying to think of, times I've totally failed and I know I failed a lot. I'm oh, just yeah. trying to think of one. <laughs> one, um, spectac- one spectacular uh, example. I mean, there's, there's, there's times where I've been on assignment where I'm just not getting it, you know, and I'm really, fr- as you know, it's so frustrating. Oh, like yeah. The light's not working and things aren't going your way. Then you have to force something. Then it looks forced. And then you're like, what are we doing here? This yeah. is, this is fucked. So, um, I've had a lot of those trips. Um, I think the, 
what I try to do is I try not to stick to some plan that I had. Like sometimes you'll see a photo and you're like, oh my God, I'm gonna come back here with somebody and I'm gonna shoot right there, it's gonna be insane. And then you bring somebody back and it doesn't look like you thought it was gonna look. Yeah. Instead of forcing that thing, be open to like, okay, we're going over here. Yeah. Or we're like change just forget it. forget it. Yeah, you gotta kinda just be loose and forget about it and not stick to stuff because you could force that thing till the sun goes down, you know, and it might not ever work. So I think it's just being a little loose and being willing to, you know, change it up and, and di- divert from your plan, you know, but, yep. um, but yeah, failings, I failed a lot. <laughs> so I also love to read. I read a lot. Just read this amazing book called The Last Unicorn, which I've is, heard of that. Yeah, which yeah. is by a writer in Santa Fe named William Dubois, who's a friend of a friend he's, down, he's I, I did hear that the other day he's he, it's it, all his books are, gr- are really good yeah. uh, and, and this book is no exception and it's there was a little uh, sort of a concept that I came away from the book that he writes about and when I'm looking at this poster across the room from you which says seen repress us which is no no dams which is referring to, to Chile and and Patagonia where they're gonna put these these big hydroelectric dams in yeah and Du Bois is in Laos, and they're looking for this animal that was only discovered in the in the like late '80s, early '90s, and they weren't sure it even existed anymore. It's one of the most like elusive, rarest creatures on Earth. And you go, they go into Laos, and he's with a small crew of people, and and there's like snare lines, and the, the Vietnamese are coming over the mountains, and they're just trapping anything they can get in the jungle. And you're kind of like, man, this like it, it's the same story again. You're like, this sucks. Like what we're doing to the planet. Yeah, yeah. But the concept that he writes about is fatalism, blended with optimism. <laughs> and 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 I read that over and over and over, and I wrote that down, and I'm like, that that's kind of it. Because you look around and you look at like the dam projects in Chile or this this creature in Laos, and you go, God, we're like, we're killing all this stuff. We're cutting down the trees. It's not looking like it's heading in the right direction, but there's no point in sitting here every day and saying, well, this sucks. You have to be optimistic about things. Sure, yeah. And, and how do you feel about that? I mean, looking forward, Patagonia, obviously a great brand. They're conscious about what's going on and they're involved in all these different things. But to me, that fatalism and optimism, looking at the future, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really, I, I can be really pessimistic about the future, you know, and I think, you know, you sit down with Yvonne for five minutes and you just want to put a gun to your head. Like, it's all <laughs> over, you know. It's a, um, but then you look at what he does and you're like, okay, I get it, you know. And yeah. So, you know, working at Patagonia, it's a, it's a topic all the time is the environment, and it really is. And I just came from a um, four-hour philosophy meeting at Patagonia where they take a bunch of people and talk philosophy of the company and it's all comes down to the environment. It's really insane. That sounds great. It's beautiful. Yeah, it comes down to the environment. But it's also depressing too because, you know, this guy Vincent Stanley who's doing the philosophy class, he's just talking about the state of the world and where we're at and how are we as a company, what are we going to do about it? And again, you just want to put a gun to your head. You yeah. Know? It's like, so I get super depressed. Um, but Working for a company like Patagonia, where they are trying to find solutions, trying to do the best they can, um, but being real about what they do, we pollute and all that stuff. Um, That helps a lot, knowing that I'm working with a company that actually believes in that. Um, Leaving on that trip 180 South, where we made the film, I was super pessimistic leaving on that trip. Um, But what that film did to me is it gave me kind of a renewed... um, kind of a new um, outlook on the environment and people, because... I met so many people down there that are dedicating their lives to doing to protecting the environment or their yeah. local areas. There's Ramon Navarro yep. down in down in Pichu Who Limu. was the son of the the, the fisherman. fisherman. Yeah, 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 the yeah. New new movie out by Chris Malloy, um, son of, son of a fisherman's son. Um, you know, I, and I, I was just thinking about you know um, Yosemite Valley and um, um, oh my god, I just had um, <laughs> Rocks, trees. Yeah, mirror so, taking um, taking Roosevelt out and camping and, oh, yeah, and, yeah. and making it a park and stuff. And yep. it just comes down to people, you know. And then I go down to see Ramon doing his thing and seeing Chris and Doug Tompkins, what they're doing. I'm like, it gave me a whole new outlook on people and what people can do. Because yeah. it's not governments. It's all about individuals. And it gave me this whole new outlook and like kind of more positive. Like, wow, there's people doing things out there and they do make a difference, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think the average person, I've never run into an average person that says, you know, like, oh, yeah, I, I, I really want to put up a dam that ruins this area. Or I yeah, really no want to, oh, there's yeah. an animal in the Laos? Yeah, oh, yeah I want to eradicate that. People, they don't want to do that. So yeah. 
it may be happening, but that's where the, for me, the optimism comes is like, well, we just have to make sure that people know about this. You can't, yeah. you can't point the finger now because people get really yeah, defensive yeah. and go, hey, don't tell me what to do. So you can't do that. You're driving a car. Exactly. You know, like, you yeah. Know, it's, yeah, I drove like 400 miles in the past couple of days. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm polluting like everybody else. But exactly. yeah, it's just an interesting, interesting concept. I mean, I guess it's the game that we've all played as a, as a species that we will continue to play yeah, to like, and see where it plays out. But I know sometimes it feels like you've been dealt a, a pretty bad hand. What's yeah. the one thing that you don't have that you really want or really need and that can be anything can be you know the oh, i just yeah. saw a guy drive by here in like literally a porsche that looked like it came off of the racetrack <laughs> even my nephew was like what is that a race car on the highway it's like yeah so it could be that or it <laughs> yeah. could be a new like a lens i don't know I mean, there's always little things like a Leica lens that I, I love that I want to get. Um, but, you know, I, 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 that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know what... Uh, it, it makes me sound like, oh, my life's perfect. I don't need anything. But of course <laughs> I do. Um, well, but no, it's good because you're I'm, not... You know, if you said, oh, I need this, 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 and this, then maybe you've been preoccupied with that. And so <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, maybe you're, you're at a good level of contentment where, as my friend said, content but not complacent. That's the key. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. I mean, for a long time, I wanted a kid. My wife and I were working on having a child. Now she's she's pregnant. We're gonna have a kid. And that's done. Take that off September, the checklist. September. Yeah, and that was like the big wish list. That's a and, huge deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal, and that's yeah. gonna be coming up right right in a couple months. So that's gonna be a great life changer. Um, so that was kind of on my mind for a long time. Now that's happening. I, that's a pretty big one. I mean, that's bigger than the Leica lens. Yeah, that, that's yeah, like yeah, that's a little bit bigger than a Leica lens. But, uh, so then that's going to lead to my next question, which was what's next for you? So we obviously know there's a mini, either, I don't know, boy or girl on the way, but you have uh, a baby coming. Yeah. But what's next for you as, a, as an artist? What's coming next? You know, I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, um, I was just thinking the other day, like, uh, you know, I get emails from... Um, it sounds weird, but like like little fan mail and stuff, little emails from people, and, yeah. and um, I used to try to answer every single one, you know. Yeah. And um, now it's really hard because there's so many, and I, I feel if I answer one, I have to answer them all. So right. I apologize if anybody's sent me an email I didn't answer, but it's, it's sometimes no, it's too it's hard. hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard to kind of give answers because they're asking me like I know the answer, and I don't have the answer. And I was thinking the other day, because a lot of them are young kids you know, in their early 20s going, hey, how do you do it? I yeah. want to do what you're yeah. doing. And I don't know how I got to where I'm at now. And I, and to tell you the truth, I'm 46 years old, and I, I don't really know what I'm doing with my life. We're yeah. going to do, you know, it's like, yeah. and there's, there's something really fun about that of not knowing, you know, and, and sure. that's what life's about. Um, it's a little unsettling, too. I'm I'm always a little unsettled, like, I'm not really quite sure what's around the corner, you know? Um, you know, I, I think that's inherent. I, I don't think, I mean, literally, I think if, if you went out and made a list of the top 10 things that you needed to be secure in your life, there would be an 11th that would probably haunt you. And, and that's a, that's a <laughs> yeah. consistent trait through people who are creative that are making stuff all the time. There is not a day that goes by that I don't, I don't question every single thing in my life. There, yeah, there's yeah, maybe yeah. one, I'm very happily married, that's one of the best decisions I ever made, but everything else is on the table. It's just a daily, a daily battle of like, is this right? Should I be doing this? Why am I not doing that? What about this? Yeah. So yeah, it's a scatter. Yeah, it's a... It's awful. I don't think... That I, I, but I think maybe that's what keeps us warm, and that's what like makes you get up at five in the morning when you could sleep in and go, I'm not going to sleep in. I'm going to go see what's around the corner. Yeah, you're excited to see... Yeah, because you don't know. You, you want to get up and check it out. That's right. <laughs> Well, we just hit 52 minutes, and wow. I thank you so much for taking time to yeah, do this. This you. was a, a blast, and uh, I can't wait to do this again at some point in time when you're, you know, after the baby and after the next adventure. Yeah, yeah, good to catch up, too. Good to finally meet you. After I know, I know. It's been years. Cool. Thank you again. Yeah, thank you, Dan.